This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another Pipeline podcast. Tim McMaster here along with MLB Pipeline's Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis. Lots to get to on this edition of the pod. Trade deadline season is here. We will break down the prospects who have switched teams thus far. The Under Armour All-American Classic was played in Chicago over the weekend in Jim Callis's backyard. He was there. We'll talk about that game and who impressed as we look ahead to that 2019 draft. The same names who have impressed all summer long continued to, that's for sure. But before we get to those topics, the top 100 and top 30 prospect list re-rank is live on MLBPipeline.com. Make sure you check it out, and we're going to dive right into that. And guys, let's start right at the top. Why not? And no surprise at the very top, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. remains number one. And really throughout the top 10, Fernando Tatis Jr. two, Aloy Jimenez three, Nick Senzel, Victor Robles, then it's Brendan Rodgers, Forrest Whitley, Kyle Tucker, Bo Bichette, and Royce Lewis. It's a solid top 10. Um, You guys have done the um, switching up a little bit this year because you've had little resets along the way. But we're going to do most of these comparisons between the preseason top 100 and the current. Uh, You are writing the all-around story for this re-rank, Jonathan. So just sum up the top 10. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of the names that have been on there. Uh, I think there were five guys who were on the top 10 preseason who are uh, still on there uh, after Vlad Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr. at number two, Eloy Jimenez at three, Nick Senzel at four uh, from the Reds, uh, Victor Robles, the outfielder from the Nationals at number five, and Forrest Whitley is the only pitcher in the in the top ten. He's at number seven. Those are the the holdovers from from last year in terms of from one top ten to the other. All right, I think the the more interesting thing as far as the re-rank goes is obviously you look at the draft in June and you've taken those players into account and overall 10 players drafted last month have found their way into the new top 100. Casey Mize, the, num- the number one overall pick of the Tigers, he goes in at number 20. Nick Madrigal, uh, Oregon State uh, second baseman, goes number 33 with the White Sox. Joey Bart is number 36. Alec Baum with the Phillies is number 46. Then Jonathan India, 56 with the Reds. Brady Singer, 67 with the Royals. Matt Libertor, 68 with the Rays. Jared Kelnick, number 69 with the Mets. Travis Swaggerty, 88 with the Pirates. And then finally Cole Wynn just sneaking in at number 99. Jim, when you put this list together and you consider the guys who were just drafted, some of these guys are already playing minor league baseball. Some of them, mostly the pitchers, aren't really going to throw much for their new teams until next year. Do you take into account um, the first month of these players' professional careers, or are these placements, for the most part, based on where they were drafted and their college-slash-high school performances? Yeah, I don't put too much stock in performance, and I don't even know a lot of these guys. I don't think even have been going for a full month because if you sign for more money, you're, you're the College World Series like Madrigal was. It, it takes a little while. 
Um, and I, in general, even you know, at the end of the summer, it's more like. Like, like for instance, I guess if Nick Madrigal, who, who Jonathan and I both consider to be the best hitter in this draft, if Nick Madrigal were to go out and hit 120 and strike out a 30% clip, uh, at the end of the summer I might say, whoa, well, wait a minute, <laughs> there's something off here. What's going on? But, but unless it's like an extreme performance where the, the, the tools seem different, well, yeah, we're going basically on – now, not just where they were drafted. I, I would say combination of, of where they were drafted, but also where we had them ranked. Because we had guys like Brady Singer and, and Matthew Libertor fell farther than we expected them to and farther than they should have based on talent. But, but you're basing it on, on long-term value and, and how you think the tools are going to play in pro ball. I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, Jonathan, I mean, I don't know if you get this, but there's occasionally when we're – when I'm re-ranking my teams and talking to people, you'll get some people be like, oh, you know, I don't know if you should rank so-and-so or rank him high because he hasn't played yet. And Well, mm-hmm. that's not what we're doing here. We're, 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 we're trying to address guys based on long-term value. And so I think that's really what it comes down to, uh, you know, when you're looking at those guys. You, you, you can't get too caught up in how they're doing in their, their, their first couple of weeks in pro ball. Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, I would. I would agree with that. It's you know, it's always about long-term projection, and you know, who, you know, who these, we think these guys are going to be five, six, seven years down the line. Uh, you know, it, it it it's a challenge inserting these guys because we haven't seen them uh, at similar levels of competition to you know that the 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 other top prospects uh, you know are going to face, and until they do it for like. Uh, Especially that first full season, where they have to just deal with the the length and the grueling nature of a full professional year, um, you're never sure how a guy is going to react to, in either direction. Invariably, there will be guys that we're really high on, and they hit pro ball, and and they they're not ready to handle it, and we adjust accordingly. And then there are guys who we don't consider top 100 guys now, or at the end of the list, who hit the ground running and, and they move up. And, you know, so obviously it's always a fluid thing uh, that, that we're adjusting, you know, officially twice a year. And then with the market corrections a couple of times over the course of, of the season beyond that. So there are plenty of opportunities for us to, to move these guys around. This is just uh, our first uh, go round of trying to figure out where they belong on this board. And obviously sometimes a bigger learning curve for high school prep players as opposed to college guys from big-time programs as well and the speed with which they will move through the minors also. Is there a draft guy who maybe just missed that you guys thought maybe ahead of time would be in this list, but once you start to put it together, ended up on the outside looking in, Jonathan? Well, now i gotta, I got to call up the list. <laughs> um, I, I... If you have somebody, Jim, on, on the, I'll jump on the tip in. of your say, tongue, guys, go for the, it. Two guys who just missed were, were Nolan Gorman and, and Ryan Weathers. You know, Gorman, the, the probably the best power hitter in this draft, third baseman drafted by the Cardinals, and Weathers was uh, the seventh overall pick by the Padres, lefty, and, and the son of David Weathers. I mean, you could argue both of those guys on the list. They probably will make it before the end of the season. As guys graduate, we will – you know, take those guys off the list and, and put in some fresh blood toward the end. But, but those were probably the two guys who, who, who were the closest. And, and one thing, and I'm not saying this to avoid the, you know, I'm sure there will be complaints and hopefully uh, some, some kind words on Twitter when the, when the list goes live. But, but whenever you're doing a list like this, I mean, honestly, you know, the guys who make the list at 86 to 100 and the guys who make the list at 101 to 115, there's not much different. 
difference between them. It's just you get you, there's room to put 15 guys in those last 15 spots, and then there's a bunch of guys who just miss. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think you could argue Gorman and Weathers versus you know Swaggerty and Wynn, who were the last two draft guys who made the list. Um, and you know, I think we'll see them all on the list you know before the end of the summer. Yeah, and just to to add on quickly to that, it's kind of interesting that there isn't really anybody else that I felt was particularly close. That doesn't mean more guys won't work their way on later. Maybe Trevor Larnick, the Twins, sort of interesting, but we didn't really seriously consider anybody else of of the draftees to to make it. So, uh, you know, if and when um, those two do make it on, we're probably going to wait till next year and see how guys uh, either – you know, get reports of them at Instructs or, uh, you know, or even the beginning of next year uh, as, as additions as guys graduate off the, the 2019 version uh, of the Top 100. But, there, yeah, there really wasn't anybody else that was really sort of, I felt, sort of screaming out that it needed to even be considered for the Top 100. There's always some guys that obviously have great first halves to the season and kind of rocket up the list or from off of the list, and this year no different when you look back on the preseason top 100. The biggest guy, Alex Kirilov, who checks in at number 31, wasn't on the list. And a lot of times when you have guys that do this, Jonathan, that go from off the list onto it, it's because they're coming off injury. That's the case with Kirilov, and he's been impressive. Yeah, I mean, he had Tommy John surgery uh and missed all of 2017, was the Twins' first rounder from from the year prior in 2016. Uh, been Appalachian League MVP in his first summer, so he you know, it, it certainly made a name for himself and was sort of right on the cusp of being a top 100 guy. And then the, the elbow injury uh, was uh, discovered or reported, and he had the surgery. So you need just to wait to see how he was going to come back. <laughs> and he's come back and just absolutely raked. He's been promoted already uh, from, from low A to high A, went to the Futures game, put on a show of BP, had some good at-bats there uh, during the game. Um, he was added to our top 100 once the season started, so he's been on there, but he wasn't on there in preseason. And we, we just gave him a nice boost up just based on, on the year he's having. He's now looking very much like the really, really good pure hitter uh, that everyone liked coming out of the 2016 draft. Yeah, the Twins have a nice little core coming up through the system now. You work him in as well. Uh, Jim, some other guys very much on the rise come from systems that are really good. Wander Franco with the Rays, Jordan Alvarez with the Astros, Chris Paddock with the Padres. Uh, they move up from off the list of 41, 42, and 50, respectively. Yeah, Wander Franco is a really interesting guy. I mean, he was – if you don't count guys who played in professional leagues, Shohei Otani and Julio Pablo Martinez is with the Rangers. You know, Franco was the best international you know, prospect last year. You know, maybe call him the best international amateur. And you know, he's shown why. I mean, he's he's in the Appy League. He's in close to 380. He he's got almost twice as many extra base hits as strikeouts. Um, you know, he's got a chance to stay at shortstop. You know, if he winds up going to second base, I don't think it's going to matter because I think the bat has a chance to be, be really, really special. Um, so it's been kind of interesting to see him hit the ground, uh, hit the ground running. You know, Jordan Alvarez is built on what he did last year. You know, Chris Paddock, I think it was just a case of staying healthy. And you know, Sean Murphy 
toward the end of last year, started to establish himself as, as maybe the best defensive catcher in the minors, and he's continued to hit. And Cabrian Hayes has always had a good glove, and, and he's starting to drive the ball more consistently. So, um, you know, kind of a, a variety of, of different factors there. You know, you, you know, use John mentioned with Kirilov. I mean, Kirilov and Paddock probably would have been on that list had they been healthy um, throughout 2017. And it's nice. Uh, it's always good, you know, to see those guys, you know, get back to where they were you know, rather than, than really being hampered by the injury. So that, I think it's been kind of fun to watch. It'll be interesting to see, now that the Braves at the major league level are a contending team again, obviously in that National League East, very much alive in the race, it'll be interesting to see if the fan base, which keeps a close eye on the two of you during this time of year when the re-ranks or the regular ranks are coming out, it'll be interesting to see if they're as involved uh, on Twitter um, but they have to be happy to see that you guys have boosted Austin Riley up uh, 53 spots all the way up to 44. And that's a spot that the Braves need to fill here sooner or later, third base or the left side of the infield. Jonathan, what has Austin Riley done this uh, first half of 2018 that's given him the boost? Uh, well, he's hit, you know, at the upper levels. And I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that those Braves fans are too busy paying attention to, to the big league standings. Um, but, uh, He's he's got a little dinged up, but you know not only is he hit, he got promoted to AAA. Wasn't setting the world on fire in AAA, but was more than holding his own. He's still really young for his level. I, you know, I think the thing with Austin Riley, we always knew that that he was a pure power guy, uh, and that the the power um, was going to uh, was going to play, uh, at, you know, at whatever level. I think what's been surprising somewhat and why he's moved up so much is that he is a better all-around hitter uh, than we thought he makes adjustments even if it takes him a little while uh, like like in AAA I think you know he has a, the ability to actually hit for a decent amount of average um, and that's what's made him a, a better all-around prospect and uh, the offensive profile is really good even if he ends up over at first base long term which some people do think he has worked hard on his defense uh, but he's a big guy uh, the bat is going to profile just fine from first. So that's the, the, the big reason I, for me why he's made such a large jump. One more guy that has really climbed. Um, I'll go back to you for this, Jim. Carter Keeboom with the Nationals, um, the shortstop. He's jumped 55 spots up to number 35. Um, the Nationals are going to need an influx of new talents as that roster gets a little bit older. Um, talk about Keeboom. Obviously, his brother's in that system as well. Yeah, I mean, his brother's more of a backup catcher type, and I think Carter's got a, a chance to be a, a real star. You know, he had a hamstring injury that hampered him last year, or again, I think he probably would have ranked higher. Um, but, you know, he's showing the pure hitting ability that made him a first-round pick. I think he might have more power uh, than than we expected. Um, he's handled the jump to double-A at age 20 without a problem. And I don't think he'll be a gold glover, but I think he's been better at shortstop uh than perhaps anticipated, um, and has a chance to stay there. I, you know, I don't know where he's going to fit. There's a lot of, you know, I, I think his best profile position might be third base, although if Anthony Rendon sticks around in Washington for the long term, that'll be tough, and they have Trey Turner short. But, but this guy can, can really, really hit, and I think he'll find his way into their lineup, you know, maybe even sometime next year. Uh, I just don't think they're going to be able to hold him back. All right, we talk about the good, the guys on the rise. We have to talk about uh, the other side of things, and there's always players that have to fall in these rankings to make room for the guys that are on the rise, some of them all the way off of the list. And the top two when you talk about that, Jonathan, Austin Hayes, who checked in at number 23 to start the year after just a 
incredible rise really in 2017. Uh, and then Cal Contral on the pitching side was number 40 with the Padres. He falls off the list as well. Um, what in your mind is going on with Hayes? I wish I knew. Yeah. I, you know, I really, um, you know, he's hurt now. Um, and, but he just, the, the, the bat never really got going. I mean, this is a guy who had a chance to make the Orioles out of spring training because he had such a, a ridiculous first full season of pro ball to, to get to the big league so quickly. Um, he was the first hitter from this draft class to make it. And I think he raised the, the bar tremendously. And then, you know, this year he went back down to double A and just didn't hit. Um, you know, a lot of swing and miss, didn't draw any walks, um, nine walks and 143 games, 174 at bats. It, uh, he just sort of went backwards, uh, and now the injury, so he's only played, you know, he's only played in those 43 games this year. So um, I kind of want to sort of stick a pin in him and, and, you know, wait and see what happens when he comes back healthy and, and see what happens next year. There's plenty of time for him to, to right the ship, but he, he definitely went to, in, in the wrong, in, wrong direction after a year in which pretty much everything went right. And then, Jim, I mentioned Quantrill. How about that? Obviously, that Padres system still loaded, but Quantrill was in the top five as far as their prospects go, and he's fallen a little bit off this year. Uh, he's in a talented roster there in AA. Yeah, I mean, he'll drop on our Padres list, and he, he missed the top 100. But he also, like I was saying earlier, he'd fall in the category of one of those guys who if we did a 101 to 115, you'd see Cal Quantrill there, and it just so happens that, he falls in that range instead of, you know, 86 to 100. I mean, you know, I think he's still a talented, you know, prospect. Um, he just hasn't been as effective this year. I think the lack of a breaking ball, or lack of a quality breaking ball, is caught up to him a little bit in double A. I mean, he's got a good change up. He's got a, got a pretty solid fastball. Um, he throws strikes. I don't think his control has been quite as sharp this year. And I'll extrapolate, you know, maybe because he's been getting knocked around a little bit in double A. He's, you know, nibbling a little bit more. But, I mean, I think the things we, we all liked about Cal Quantrill are still there. I, I just think this year is reinforcing that, you know, to maybe be that, that number three starter we thought he was going to be or more if you liked him more than that. He's going to have to come up with a better slider or a better curveball to keep guys off his, off his fastball and change it. All right, one more thing to touch on as far as this top 100 list and the re-rank goes. That is prospect points. We talk about this every time the new list comes out. For people that um, don't know what that means, basically the number one prospect in the top 100 spot is worth 100 points, number 299, number 398, and throughout the list. And you add them all up for each team, and it doesn't give you an idea of who the best system is overall, but... It, pushes you in that direction because these are obviously the high-end guys and not taking into account a team's entire organization. So that said, the Padres lead all 30 teams with 496 prospect points. The Braves are are there with them as far as players in the top 100 with eight, but they uh, don't win out as far as points go. Then the White Sox have seven top 100 prospects, and they finish second in the points with 431. The Braves actually third in points, 393. The Rays, 389, and the Reds, 308. Um, prospect points are fun, uh, and it is fair to say those teams are the best systems. They just don't necessarily, Jim, work out to one, two, three, four, five. once you go through and look at them as a whole. 
Yeah, I mean, we will rank the farm systems after the dust settles from the trade deadline, so we haven't done that yet. I would suspect, I think Jonathan would agree with me, that the Padres will be number one, and not because they're the most prospect points, but just because we think they have an incredibly deep system and a ton of quality as well as quantity. Um, you know, I, if, off the top of my head, you know, have not broken down the systems yet. You know, the, the, the clear top four, you know, the, the, the Padres were clear number one based on prospect points. Then you had the, the, the White Sox, Braves, and uh, Rays, you know, kind of close to each other. Uh, I would not be surprised if when all is said and done, those are the top four systems in baseball. That would make sense to me. Um, I, I wind up, I have a crazy spreadsheet where I factor all kinds of combinations of, of things and guys who are on the, you know, just missed the top 100 or guys who are getting a 50 overall grade or guys I like. And it's this goofy spreadsheet, and I use that kind of as a starting point. But I have not input anything into it to see what it's going to spit out yet. Jonathan, thoughts on just the prospect points as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's fun. Uh, people, I think, when we first started, you know, took it to mean uh, best farm system. And invariably you'll see people report it that way, and that's that's fine. Uh, you know, it's it's more a way to look at who might you know might have the most future impact talent. Uh, th- you know, that doesn't mean that they'll have the most big leaguers or have the deepest system. Um, and I think you're right overall. Like, teams that have that are in the very top in terms of points are likely you know they're going to be in that top ten. Um, there aren't too many teams that are like really low prospect point wise. Uh, but still have a really good farm system because typically when, if you're really deep, you're going to have at least some impact talent. Um, and the bottom of those, uh, when we do the top 10 farm systems, we'll, we'll tweak a little bit in, in terms of uh, teams that maybe aren't top 10 in points and, and vice versa, you know, going in the other direction. But, uh, you know, th- this is about right. Uh, it, you know, I think the Reds, you know, it, it surprised me a little bit that they were, you know, in the, in the top five, uh, except, then you consider that they've got you know Nick Senzel, Hunter Green, and Taylor Trammell all at the upper part of the list, and and that's where the bulk of those points come from. So those are three you know future elite level perhaps impact players, and and you know that's what uh, helped them bump uh, their way up uh, up the list a little bit. All right, so that is a look at the top 100. It's on MLBPipeline.com. That and all the new top 30s are up there as well. Uh, It's great that you get that done before really the end of the trade deadline. So as some of these players get moved, you know where they currently stand. So keep an eye on that as your team makes a move for a, for a player here down the stretch. All right, let's move on to the trade deadline because uh, some moves have already been made. Obviously the big one so far, guys, Manny Machado goes to the Dodgers. Seemed like it was inevitability really from the, the day Corey Seager got hurt, but it took a while for it to actually come to fruition. Um, going the other way, to the Orioles is a good little package. The Orioles, I feel like, needed quality and quantity if they were going to trade Machado, and it seems like they got that. They get Yusniel Diaz, who who goes to the top of their prospect list. Dean Kramer is number 13 in the Orioles system now. Zach Pop, 24. Ryland Bannon, number 20. Bravik Valera, uh, not in the top 30 for the Orioles, but another player. Um, you're gonna lo- when you lose the face of your franchise, you have to show your fans, Jim, that hey, this is you know how we're gonna take that next step towards the future. Do you feel like the Orioles successfully have done that? Yes, it, it's 
Weird, you know, I've had a lot of time to ruminate on this trade because it, it's it's happened, you know, last week, and I, I feel like I've done, I've, I don't know, I've probably done a half dozen radio shows where I got asked about it, and you know, my initial impression was, and I still am a little bit underwhelmed by the package, just from the standpoint, I, I like using Neil Diaz. You know, the power's coming. He could have solid tools across the board. You, you saw a glimpse of what he could do with the Futures game. He's a really good prospect. And I don't think there was any question, you know, from what the world said, he was the best player they got offered in any of these deals. Um, and so, like, yeah, I could see where you'd want Yusel Diaz. Well, the part that underwhelmed me a little bit, not the guys don't get better, but I do our Dodgers list. <laughs> and none of those guys, other guys made our preseason top 30. Now, Dean Kramer, you know, is, is challenging for the minor league lead in strikeouts. Ryland Bannon's had a big year in the Cal League, which is a great place to hit. Zach Pop is a guy we liked out of the draft, but had some health issues, which is why he slid a little bit last year. You know, but none of these guys were premium draft picks. None of them were top 30 guys coming into the year. And, and they are performing well, but, but looking at the glass half empty a little bit, you know, Dean Kramer, you know, it, it's not, he, he gets strikeouts, but it's not overwhelming stuff. He might be a number four starter. I, I think Ryland Bannon is kind of a – uh, you know, I don't know if he's a first division regular. Maybe he's an everyday player on a second tier team. I don't know if he's really an everyday player on a contender. And Zach Pop, you know, has a very good arm, but he's got to prove he can stay healthy and then he can throw consistent strikes. I'm not ready to anoint him a closer. And you, know, you mentioned where they were on the Orioles list, and the Orioles don't have like a, a super deep farm system, and none of those guys made the top ten. So. That's I'm going to vacillate back and forth on this one. I'll just flip flop back and forth. So like my initial impression was I was underwhelmed, but then everybody else who seemed to vandalize the trade, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk that, that that you know basically for rental that's the best you can do, which floors me a little bit when I think about the fact that Glaber Torres got traded for Roldis Chapman and Manny Machado is an everyday player and Roldis Chapman is a closer and the Dodgers theoretically could re-sign Machado and the Cubs weren't going to re-sign. Chapman, everybody knew that at the time. You know, and they also gave up. You know, Billy McKinney, who was a decent prospect, and Adam Warren, who was a big leaguer in that trade. So I, mean, I, I guess maybe my expectations were higher than they should have been. But from all accounts, I think one thing everybody does agree upon is, is I think Diaz was, like I said, the best player they could get in any of those deals. And the Orioles, you know, you know, insist, and I don't have any reason to doubt them. That was the best offer they got, and they took it. So. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys feel like? Like, I know the, I know Manny Machado's a rental, but he's Manny Machado, and maybe I should just get the Roldis Chapman trade out of the mind. But it just floors me that the Glaber Torres, you know, got traded for a closer, and Manny Machado, despite spirited competition from other teams, didn't bring your prospect back back to who was as good. Yeah, I think I think one of the biggest uh, problems that we can run into is when we try to compare one year's trade market to another, um, especially if it was, you know, maybe that was an outlier, the, the Chapman deal, uh, you know, because of the teams involved and what they were, weren't willing to, to, to do. Um, you know, if we take the Orioles at the word, as you said, and that was the best offer they were going to get, then comparing, you know, it, it, they, they can't wait around and say, well, we're going to wait around for a similar return to what the, uh, you know, what the Yankees got for Raldis Chapman because it, <clears throat> it may not have been there this year for whatever reason. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a rental. Uh, I get it. Uh, but I think given the impact that Manny Machado could have over the course of two months and the fact that the Dodgers will, will now have, a, you know, sort of first crack at re, 
you know, signing him to a, a long-term deal and probably I would imagine would be able to, um, you know, uh, yeah, the, probably would like to see more. I mean, a lot's going to depend on uh, just how good Usnel Diaz turns out to be. You know, if he's an elite level, uh, you know, all-star caliber outfielder, then suddenly it seems like a much better trade. Um, and he might be. Uh, and then the other guys, if they, yeah, they they were not top guys coming into the season, but they were moving in the right direction. You know, if Dean Kramer continues his trajectory, then I think that the the trade overall uh, seems a, a lot better. And, and as Tim pointed out uh, from the get-go, uh, there definitely was a need for quantity uh, in addition to quality. Yeah, and you know, one thing that's always really interesting about the trade is that. You know, Uziel Diaz is the clear headliner in the deal, and he goes to an organization that basically doesn't spend on international players at all, has chosen not to participate in the market, often trades away all its international bonus pool money, and they acquire a guy who cost the Dodgers $31 million in bonuses and penalties to sign. Uh, you know, and I know they've addressed this a little bit, but I mean, that should be a wake-up call to Baltimore that maybe you want to pursue some international players every once in a while. I mean, by the time the trade deadline passes, the best player on their team might be Johnson Scope, who's one of the few international success stories they've had. And it isn't even like they've failed. They just haven't really tried. Yeah, and they may. it sounds like they may go a little more into international waters uh, in the future for sure. Uh, I think the Cubs clearly at the time and looking back overpaid for Chapman because they had a 100-plus year World Series drought and they they could taste the end of it and and they kind of just said all right we need this guy whatever it takes and they certainly gave up a lot um, the thing I wonder about this deal is Jim when you look at it and say okay not necessarily overwhelmed by what the Orioles got in return I wonder how this package compares to some of the offers that they received in the offseason when a team would have gotten a full season of Machado because there was obviously teams that was talk that he could get dealt way back then. The Orioles decided to kind of roll the dice, which didn't work out as they've been terrible this season. Um, but I wonder, and we probably will never know, if they could have gotten a better deal or were offered a better deal but didn't go for it in the offseason. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you, Tim, because you know he had more value. If you trade for him in the offseason and you have him on your team all year, you get a first-round pick as compensation if you don't re-sign him. So that makes him more valuable. And I just think teams have more flexibility in terms of payroll and also like being able to make other moves because there's more players on the market, either as free agents or, or whatever, in the offseason that, you know, you know the the mistake they they probably did make a mistake because I, I, I have to think they could have gotten – a better package than this. But but to get back to what Johnson said, you know, you, you can't go back in time. And, you know, if this was the – they needed to trade Machado. And, you know, I'd rather have Yusniel Diaz, who, who's close to the big leagues, and this package than just get a first-round pick only next year. And so at least they didn't compound their mistake by saying, ah, you know, we, we have to hold out for ransom. You know, they, they made the move for the best offer that they felt they had on the table. 
And then they made another move as they traded Zach Britton to the Yankees, uh, and they get some more prospects back in that deal that fit into their system. Dylan Tate, uh, the former first-round pick who has had, a, I guess, an interesting trip through the minor leagues, kind of ups and downs. They also get right-handed pitcher Cody Carroll and lefty Josh Rogers. Tate checks into the new Orioles system at 6, Carroll at number 14. Uh, Jonathan, I'll go to you first on this one. Uh, Machado, you knew they had to strike big. Britton was really... I think most people weren't sure what the Orioles would be able to get. A guy who's obviously battled injuries but was once a absolutely best closer in the bigs type of guy. Um, the Yankees end up giving up. You know, there's some there's some talent in that deal. What do you think of that move? I, I thought it was okay given given the sort of hickeys with with Britain now yeah. with the with you know, the injury issues and he's not quite. Uh, you know who he was. I think if there was a guarantee that he was going to be that guy, then it, it probably uh, maybe that would have been the trade you would have uh, compared the Araldis Chapman deal to. Uh, although I wouldn't, you know, put, put Britain quite on that level. Uh, so it was okay. You know, I think some of it might depend on what Dylan Tate uh, might end up becoming, uh, and I think that's still unclear. Uh, you know, he's kind of he did right the ship somewhat and was uh, pitching pretty well in Double A. Um, I still wonder if maybe he's a relief pitcher, uh, and that's the best way for him to deal with. Uh, he's had you know a couple of different injuries, so you worry about durability. Uh, so maybe he's a reliever. I really like Cody Carroll. Um, you know, we saw him in the fall league, and then I saw him in the AAA All Star game, and I think we talked about him a little bit. I had forgotten about him in, in the fall league, but AAA All Star game, he was just ridiculous. His stuff is really really good, and I think he's ready to help out in, in the big league bullpen right now. Uh, so in terms of, you know, you're looking at uh, a farm system that is light, especially in terms of pitching help, they did get a couple guys in, in Tate and Carroll who are at the upper levels and one in, in, with Carroll who I think could and should contribute right now. Jim, do you have thoughts on that uh, that side of the trade? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, you know, Britain's value wasn't as high as it would have been had he avoided injuries, and, and he was going out the door. So I think the Orioles, it, it was good to get what they could for him. I, I kind of echo Jonathan's thoughts there. Uh, you know, Tate, I kind of suspect he's a reliever. His stuff just doesn't play like you think it's going to as a starter. Uh, I loved Cody Carroll in the fall league. Um, you know, Josh Rogers kind of pitched Billy Lefty, who may fill back the rotation roles, third guy on the trade. And I, I just thought that trade was a no-brainer for the Yankees for, for a couple reasons. One, it's almost like the Yankees have a machine that just cranks out, you know, pitching prospects left and right. And okay, you know, we'll we, we'll trade these three guys and we'll, we'll just print out three more. Um, yeah, I, I do their list as well. And every time I talk to their pitching coordinator, Danny Burrell, uh, he's got arms I've never heard of, like Rosasny Contreras, who are lighting it up in the lower minors. Um, so I thought that it was easy, an easy choice for them to make that trade. And then the bonus: not only do you get whatever Britain brings to the table. You keep him off of the Red Sox and the Astros, um, who were also interested in him. So I just thought that move, uh, you know, made sense for for Baltimore, and I thought it made even more sense from the Yankees' standpoint. There's been other moves, but only really one of them that brought back a major prospect, and that was Brad Hand and Adam Simber going to the Indians. The Indians. Uh, Despite you know having such a good bullpen the last few years, this year it has not been good. Uh, they also haven't had a healthy Andrew Miller. So they were desperate for bullpen help. They get two arms, uh, and they send Francisco Mejia back to San Diego. And it'll be interesting to see how this works because Mejia has been 
kind of fascinating guys. He had the obviously the 50 game hitting streak that everybody heard about. Um, but then it's been a situation where the Indians just have too much catching depth and they weren't able to really work him in there. So they've been trying him at other positions. And Jim, now maybe being in another organization will help Mejia finally make it to the big leagues to stay. Yeah, although the interesting thing is, I mean, he he's on, he goes to an organization that has one of the best young defensive catchers in all baseball, and Austin Hedges, who, you know, from an amateur standpoint, is probably the best defensive catching prospect that's come out of the U.S. in, in years and years. And, and then with Mejia, I don't think anybody questions if he's going to hit. Um, I think there's going to be power there, some power there as well. But I just I sensed even before the trade, when you look at the fact that, that Jan Gomes, you know, I mean, he has his moments offensively, but Robert Perez has never hit, and yet the Indians were, you know, the Indians have, you know, a, a very good pitching staff with, with a lot of nasty stuff, and I just don't think I, I, I just wondered if they were going to trade Mejia sometime this year or in the near future, because I just don't think they were comfortable. You know, saying, "Look, we're going to hand this staff to Francisco Mejia." You know, the receiving, you know, the reports are kind of the same as they were a couple of years ago, where the receiving still needs to improve. And you know, you also run into dilemma. You know, we went through this, you know, different type of guy, but we, with Kyle Schwarber when he was on the Cubs, where I think Mejia has, you know, the, the thing that you know, he has a cannon arm, but he doesn't throw out a lot of base stealers because his transfer and accuracy aren't the best. But, you know, Francisco Mejia, I mean, you know, his best thing is the bat. Yeah, it's great that he plays catcher, but it's the bat. But the downside is if you have an offensive-minded catcher, if you make Francisco Mejia a regular catcher, that's going to take a toll on his offense, and it limits how often you can have him in the lineup. And if you can find another position for him, you're going to get more out of his bat and have him in the lineup more often. And I just wonder, I mean, I'll be very curious to see how it shakes out with Austin Hedges, but I think it might be best for everybody involved if they found another position that Mejia could play and just get him in the bat, get his bat in the lineup and let him play 150 games a year. The problem is I don't know what that position is. We saw him. Jonathan, did you get to see him at all at third base in the fall league while you were out there last year? I, I got to. Yeah, I, I, I saw him work out. Uh, I don't think I – maybe I saw him in one game. I remember getting a report. He made one really good play, but that was sort of just instinctual athletic move and but uh, did not get a, like a – a full look or a report on on what that looked like. Yeah, I saw him a couple games, and you know the, the, the arm. He's got a great arm, and it obviously plays at third, but he didn't have very much range. I mean, in his defense, he hadn't played the position much, so it's not like he was going to have much instincts. But it was kind of you know fall down range, you know, at third base, and they have. I think it's telling. He hadn't played a game at third base at all this year in the Indian system. Mm-hmm. So I, I think they felt like he couldn't play third either, and they've tried him in the outfield, and, and, and maybe that's you know where, where you put him. You know, maybe he winds up in left, and you just turn the bat loose, and he, and he hits 300 with 20 homers playing the outfield. But, I, I mean, that doesn't trade. I thought it made sense for both teams. Um, but I am really intrigued with how it's going to play out in San Diego. I mean, if you could combine them and have, you know, Francisco Hedges or Austin Mejia, <laughs> that would be a that would be an all-star catcher pretty easily, but you can't do that. Jonathan, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I, I largely agree with uh, with what uh, Jim says about that. It'll be interesting to to see how it plays out, how they find room for him there. Uh, you know, I think at a certain point in time they're going to have to make a decision. I felt like you know the Indians were kind of struggling with what to do. They didn't want to give up on him catching, but he wasn't catching all the time because they wanted his bat to continue to develop in case they needed offensive help. 
So they were kind of caught in between those, those two scenarios and we'll have to see what the, the Padres do. I, you know, I don't know, maybe him working with Austin Hedges will help his defense. Uh, maybe Hedges is, you know, the starter and, and he is 1A and he gets some starts in the outfield. You know, uh, you don't have to have as much expectations on his defense because he's not the, the number one catcher. I don't, I don't know. It's going to be very interesting to, to see. Um, uh, and be interested to see that if they decide to pull the plug on catching, how much more bat is there? Uh, you know, he definitely has had his focus split as he's been trying to, to work on multiple things, you know, working on his defense behind the plate, working on a new position on the fly while you're at the higher levels of the minors isn't easy. Um, you know, I don't think there's any question that the guy can hit, though, and I, you know, I'm curious to see how it all shakes out. All right, let's finish things up with the Under Armour All-American game. Obviously, most of the best high school talent heading into the draft in 2019 was on hand. And um, Jim gave you a chance to kind of see Bobby Witt Jr. in action. Uh, me and Jonathan had seen that at Tournament of Stars a little bit. I know you had saw him at the, the High School Home Run Derby also in Washington, D.C. But here he goes again. MVP hits a home run in the ninth inning, uh, showed his patience as well with a couple of walks. Um, what stood out to you other than the obvious about Bobby Witt Jr. in this game? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the thing that stood out to me, I, I got to see him like twice within a week. I mean, you're not going to draft a guy number one overall on the basis of a home run derby or an all-star game. But I thought it was interesting that you know, Witt is clearly the leading candidate to go number one among high school players right now, and he rose to the occasion. And I think that counts for something. You know, he, he, he brought it. He won the high school home run derby. Um, and, you know, he beat, he beat Reese Hines in the qualifying round. He beat Reese Hines uh, on Monday night with the regular, as part of the regular home run derby. And Bobby Witt's good. Bobby Witt Jr.'s good. He does not have more power than Reese Hines, but he found a way to win that. And then at the Under Armour game, with 40 of the best high school players in the country, or I guess 39, and a guy from Canada, um, he, again, he was the dominant performer. I mean, he absolutely crushed a breaking ball, and it wasn't a hanger. It was down the zone. He just went and got it and hit it deep into the left field bleachers. And before that, you mentioned the walk. He also got hit by a pitch. And his one out, he actually drove the ball pretty far to left center. That had we had a little bit of wind, maybe it would have been a, a two-homer night for him. But I was impressed. I mean, the first three times he came up, he walked twice and got hit, but he wasn't trying to make things happen. You, know, you, you get in those all-star games, and, you know, and you're on national TV, too, you know, which those guys aren't very often, and you want to make something happen, and it's tough when you don't get anything to hit. But he didn't try to overswing or chase. And, I mean, you know, look, I mean, John, I know you've talked to him, too, and, and Tim, you probably did it at the NHSI also. I mean, he's very polished, too. I mean, he's not just a good player. He's a very mature kid. He handles all the attention well. I mean, everybody wants to talk to him anytime he goes to one of these events because he's, he's the number one high school prospect, and, and he's got the big league bloodlines, and I'm sure he gets asked the same questions over and over again. But the guy just goes out and performs. Um, you know, I'm sure he'll continue to tear it up on the showcase circuit. He'll be with Team USA uh, when they're at the, the, the 18 and under Pan American Games uh, in November. And I, I was talking to Matt Blood, who runs that team for USA Baseball. And, you know, Bobby Wood Jr. is going to close a little bit for them, too. Now, he's not going to get drafted as a pitcher, but he can run his fastball in the mid-90s, so he'll even, he'll even take them out a little bit. But he was, it was fun. I mean, it, it just reinforced the notion that, yeah, you know, Bobby Wood Jr. is pretty good. Uh, Jonathan, one more thing on Witt as you think back to the Tournament of Stars because we've seen him now really get in a groove and play great. But in the Tournament of Stars, he started, I think, 
one for 11, and the one was just a single. Um, and I think one thing that stood out to me, and you can talk about it as well, is that I don't. I never saw any frustration or anything. It had to be a little frustrating on that scene at the Tournament of Stars with a lot of people watching that he wasn't swinging the back rate, but he was having pretty good at bats and he never got down. No, I mean he's been doing this a while now. You know, he was he was there last year at the Tournament of Stars, and uh, you know, so he, he knows the process. He knows it's a smaller look. He also had the comfort in knowing. I'm sure that he was going to be, make the 18 and under team, and unless you know he 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 got hurt or, or you know really fell flat on his face, but even then, uh, you know he did everything the right way. He plays with such a good and high energy, you know that he helps his team even if he's not swinging the bat that well. Uh, he's a good defender. He showed that he can play three infield positions if they want him to. He you know, he's not the kind of kid who shows up and says, no, I'm a shortstop, and if I'm not playing shortstop, then forget it. Um, he, you know, he, he's willing to do whatever's needed to help win a game, and I think that's why he, he did so well in his home run derbies. Yes, he's got probably more raw power than people gave him credit for, but he also just competes. You know, he doesn't want to be embarrassed with a lot of people watching, and he wants to win uh, every time he's involved in something. So uh, I think all of that sort of uh, played in, played into it, and I just like I love the energy he plays with and the passion that he has, and uh, it's all effort all the time from him. Uh, and I think uh, even when he was going, you know, one for eleven, uh, that stood out to the, the USA Baseball staff and stood out to all the scouts who who were watching him there. Jim, a lot of guys in the game did what we expect. Riley Green swung the bat well. He's maybe the best bat in this draft upcoming from the high school level. C.J. Abrams, who can fly, showed off the speed and was good defensively. Hunter Barco, good on the mound, maybe the best pitcher in this class. Um, But one name that jumped out from your top 10 performers that I hadn't really heard much about, and we haven't seen a lot of velocity this year from the prep level, Daniel Espino hitting 99, breaking a record for the game. Talk about him a little bit. Yeah, no, it was interesting, and it's. I will admit that before I start doing my prep for the game, <laughs> Jonathan can attest, and you can too. We're all just crushed right now, trying to get the top 30s and the top 100 updated. And there's a, a lot of work by a lot of people on that. So, like, I have not spent a lot of time on the 2019 high school draft class. You know, and I, I you guys go to NHSI. I don't usually. Um, so, like, I wasn't familiar with these guys. But I was talking to C.J. Abrams the day before the game at the workout over at UIC, which, again, a quick plug, is an unbelievably beautiful facility that Curtis Granderson paid for. So hats off to him. But anyway, I was talking to C.J. Abrams, and I was asking him who he was looking forward to facing. And he said, I, I don't think C.J. necessarily had registered who, like, like, who exactly was going to be on the other team, but he said, I'm just glad Daniel Espino is on my team. I don't want to face 98. And, and, and he threw 98 three times. But he also threw 99 once. You know, Hunter Green had the record at 98. Espino's slowest fastball in the inning he worked, it was a quick 1-2-3 inning, was 96 miles an hour. And he also threw maybe one curveball and one changeup. That, that looked pretty good, too. But he, he definitely stood out. And you're right. I, I don't think that this class has as much velocity as the 2018 class had. There's some good pitchers in it. You mentioned Barco. But Espino definitely stood out with the velocity. And, you know, a guy who was probably the second-hardest thrower 
is a 2020. That's Jared Jones from La Mirada High School in California. He kind of sat 95-96 in his inning work. Yeah, Jones at the Tournament of Stars as well, if I remember correctly, um, did not advance. All right, good stuff, guys. Definitely everyone check out the re-rank on MLBPipeline.com, see where all these draft guys are as far as your team's draft guys, where they fit into the top 30 as well. Um, For Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.